the big event is Friday, and uh, we want you there, obviously, and uh, really, really looking forward to it. Uh, Friday, February 22nd, John S. Knight Center. The point is to be together, and we're trying this because we think, we think there's gonna be value in it and vision in it and unity in it. Bath Campus has six services over two buildings every weekend, and so it has been over 15 years since we've been in a room together, and uh, we just feel like there's something to it, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be fun. It's, gonna, it's just for fun. It's just for connection catch up with old friends and make new ones. So come out and be a part of that. And uh, we would love to see you there. Don't, don't make me regret my tattoo, all right? And we would love for you to be there. If you're watching online and you do that regularly or you're at one of our online sites, uh, we want you to come into that also. So come in and say hi and connect with everyone. I'd love to meet you. And I think we're gonna have a blast together. So let's, uh, let's be a part of it. So we're in a series right now that we call We... And uh, we're gonna start another series next weekend. We're gonna kind of wrap up this phase of the We series uh, today, this weekend. And next weekend, we're gonna, wrap, uh, we're gonna start a new series called All In, All Out. I am super, super cranked about this. Uh, this series is, we're gonna be talking about some of the things that we believe God is drawing us to uh, as a congregation at, in unity. I, I really believe that there's some open doors that uh, God has opened up for us as a church. I've been uh, here at Grace for 25, going on 26 years. I can honestly tell you, I've never seen these types of opportunities at this magnitude before. And so we wanna talk about that and get a vision for it and talk about how to pursue that. I believe that it's a special thing. I believe it's something that's gonna affect us in positive ways. Uh, for a long time as a church family. It's gonna have a deep impact on our community as well. So please be a part of that, and uh, we'll launch all that next weekend. The We Series is what we wanna talk about this weekend, and the We Series comes from this idea that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, the Bible says that many things happen to you kind of simultaneously. Uh, the Bible says that, that kind of the natural state of humanity is that we have fallen away from God. The Bible says we all have sinned and we fall short of God's glorious idea. His standard, God's standard is not good, it's perfection. And we all know that we're not perfect and that falling away makes us sinners, people who are dead in our trespasses and sin spiritually. The Bible says though that when I repent of my sin, when I turn from it and I confess to God that I am a sinner and I accept who Christ is and what he has done for me and his salvation, yielding my life to his definition and direction, that a bunch of things happened to me in that moment. I moved from death to life. I'm resurrected spiritually, the Bible says. My sins are forgiven and they're washed whiter than snow is a metaphor that the Bible uses. The Bible says at that moment that the Holy Spirit the fancy word is indwells me or God comes and lives in my heart through his Holy Spirit. Because of that, the Holy Spirit then serves as a deposit on heaven. So that's how I know that I'm gonna be with God when I move from this phase of my life to the next phase of my life, that I'll be with God forever in heaven. And the other thing that happens that we don't talk about enough and it's not well enough understood, I don't think, is that in that same moment when all those things happen to us, 
we become a part of the church of Jesus Christ, the spiritual entity called the church. We're grafted into the vine. And the church is a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus. Our salvation, our interaction with God certainly is personal, absolutely. God personally loves you, personally knows you, cares about all the details of your life, wants you to cast all of your cares and your anxiety on him. That is absolutely true. And when it comes to our relationship with God, my personal relationship with God is half the story. There is also my corporate relationship with God. There is my role in the church, that I'm grafted into the church, that I'm made a part of the church, and the church is the kind of the apple of God's eye. Jesus created and initiated the church. Humanity did not. Jesus did that at the day of Pentecost. And the Bible says that the church has a special place in God's heart. The Bible uses metaphors about the church like this, that the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus loves the church the way that a, a husband would love his wife. The body says that the church is the family of God. Jesus loves the church the way that parents would love their children. The Bible says that the church is the house of God. The Bible says that the church is the body of God. Christ, that he's united with it. The Bible says that we as a church are the ambassadors of Christ as if Christ himself were making his appeal through us. The church to Jesus is a massive deal and in my relationship with God, it's a massive part of my life. Christianity is not a solo sport, it's a team sport. And my relationship with God is certainly personal but it's not private. It is created in such a way that we are to share our lives with other people and allow them to share their lives with us. So when I go to read the Bible then, if I don't read the Bible in context of my personal relationship with God and the church's role in my relationship with God, then I don't read the Bible correctly. And so we say that's what happens. The me becomes the we. My spiritual gifts that are given to me by God are to be given back to the church. We love and serve and give our lives to each other, the me becomes the we, and then we move together to accomplish the mission and the vision of God. So here at Grace, when we think about that, we look and say that's absolutely true. The Bible then says that the church is to be organized locally. So we would not say that there's one leader of the church all over the planet. We would say, no, no, no. It breaks down into local expressions. Grace Church is simply a local church. There are leaders, there are pastors, there are elders, there are all those things here locally, and we would look and say, we would look and say all the things that God teaches, we take in personally and corporately, and then in our little slice of time, on our little piece of dirt, we're living out the things that God has called us to, to live out. Now here at Grace, when we think about how we specifically locally organize ourselves as a church, we would lean into what we call our eight values. There's things when we established Grace Church as she's, as she's formed now 19 years ago, we put in certain values that we said for us personally or locally, these are non-negotiables. These values are not as important as the Bible. They are not as important as Jesus and they do not apply to every church on the planet. They are the things that we would look and say, we just believe as we were establishing the church, these are the, the Grace Church, that these are the things that God uniquely led us to and called us to, and so we want to value those things highly. 
and they're gonna be the filter through which we govern our decisions and move forward together. And so the We series talks about that. And we, we kind of break out the We series once in a while to remind us of those things. Those conversations are online, they're on the app, they're podcasts, they're everywhere. Just search it and you can find it. But the value that I wanna talk to us about this weekend is this one, that we live to give. We said we wanna set this in stone. We live to give, we practice joyful generosity, we give our time, resources, and ideas with ridiculous selflessness. We said as Grace Church, one of the hallmarks that we wanna have as a church is that we are a generous people, we're a generous church. Sometimes we do that corporately. So for instance, uh, if you went out, if you were a pastor or a leader or one of your friends somewhere else wanted to have like our sermons and our artwork and our ideas, they can't buy them because they're not for sale, we would give them to them. If we had a resource that we developed or an idea that we developed that was working really, really well here at Grace, and somebody said, we'll pay you $1,000 if you'll share that with us, we'd say, nope, how about you buy tacos and we'll just tell you about it, right? We would say, we're gonna be generous. These things belong to the kingdom of God. They don't belong to Grace Church. So we would share those things corporately. And then we would look and say, we want that to play out for us individually, that we would live a life of generosity, sharing some... Sometimes money, money's usually the last thing that's needed. Most of the time it's relationship, it's love, it's connection, it's your home, it's your time. I would share those things, right? Because I would look and say that the heart of generosity is the heart of God. And that's where this value came from. We would say, we believe that when we live generously, we're mimicking the heart and the mind of God. James chapter one, verse 17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. The Bible would say that everything that you have personally is actually a gift from God. That the reason you're able to have it or even create it is a gift from God. Why weren't you born on the, the, in Chad, Africa, the poorest country in the world? Why were you born healthy? Why does your mind work as sharply as it works? Ultimately, those are gifts from God. So we would look and say, yeah, right. All our material blessings, all of our physical blessings, all of our relational blessings, it's all a gift from God. And then all the spiritual things, the compassion, the mercy, the grace of God that's lavished on us. God is a generous God. He's rich in mercy. Not like a little bit of mercy just to kind of keep you out of hell, sort of, but your feet get singed. Not a little bit of grace so that you can kind of know about God, but he's just far off mystery somewhere. No, he makes his whole mind and heart known to us, right? He lavishes those things upon us and he gives to us. And we would say that's the heart of generosity that as a Christ follower, I would want to embrace and I would also want to give to those around me. Now, when you look at God then, and say God is a generous God, every good and perfect thing that is a part of my life ultimately is from God, we would then look and say, what is God's ultimate illustration of generosity? And we would say it's the giving of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That if you ever wonder if God's a good God or a loving God or a generous God, he gave his only son. 
Jesus gave his life. He was not murdered. He laid his life down. And when he laid his life down, he created salvation for us, and then he gives that salvation freely. In fact, you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You have to receive it as a gift. And we would look and say, look, that's a part, it's just God's character. He's a generous God. He joyfully gives. He gives with a ridiculous selflessness. And there is no clearer illustration of that than the giving of a son who gave his life so that he could give us salvation so that we could know that God and know how to interact with him. And we would say that that is the, the focal point of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, we call that the gospel. The gospel, that's the, the clean word, it's just a Greek word for good news. It's all it means. And the good news of Jesus is this, that you're dead in your trespasses and sin. There's a God that has the right to judge you. He could, he could hit you with your lightning bolt and fry you in hell the rest of for eternity if he wanted to. But that God loves you, even though you have offended and sinned and rebelled against him so much that he gave his son. His son said, I wanna make myself accessible to you so that you can understand me. So I give you my life that I lived and then the laying down of my life on the cross. Greater love has no man than this. I cannot show you my love any more deeply than allowing myself to be crucified. And then I give you my salvation, when you repent and confess, when you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. That's the gospel. I summed it up this way. I said, the gospel is this. Christ paid for all of my sins so that I might receive all of his life. He gave his life for me so that I can have spiritual life and life to the fullest. It has nothing to do with getting rich, being healthy all the time, and your hair growing back like the TV guys talk about. He has everything to do with God giving us the things that we have. He gives us every good and perfect thing. He gives us salvation, he gives us life, and then he gives us things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He gives us relationships, he gives us the church, he gives us his word, right? And I accept that. When I accept Christ as my savior, he pays for my sin, and then I receive all that he wants to give me in my life. Jesus then looks at his church and says, I want you guys then to go and give what I gave you. So the last thing Jesus ever said to his followers was, now you go and you give. You live to give. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He would look at his followers and say, guys, I gave to you. Now you who have received what I've given to you, you go give it. You give it, go to the ends of the earth. Wherever the gospel is not easily accessible or clear, my church, you go give it. Evangelism is not up to an individual individuals do the work of an evangelist, the Apostle Paul says, but the Great Commission is not an individual commission, it's the we, it's the commission of the church. We do this together, and we go, or we help others go to the ends of the earth. 
We are a part of baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we help to teach everything that has been taught to us so that you can know the heart and you can know the, the mind of God so that you can fully receive the life that he has given you so that when you receive the gospel, learn the gospel, live the gospel, you can give the gospel so people can receive the gospel, learn the gospel, give the gospel so people and disciples make disciples who make disciples and churches make churches who make churches. And that's how the good news of Jesus Christ has traveled thousands of miles over thousands of years so that we can sit here this weekend and talk about it freely. Because the followers of Jesus Christ have lived to give. And they've given and they've given and they've given and they've given. And they're free with the gospel. And if it takes money to give, they give money. If it takes their relationships to give, they'll, they'll give friendship. If it takes themselves volunteering to get on the boat and sail across the ocean so that the gospel shows up on our shores, then they'll do that. But they've lived to give with joyful generosity, with ridiculous selflessness, never hoarding what has been given to them, right? Now, I have the privilege of coaching churches all over the place, churches in North America and churches all over the world. I love pastors and have a deep heart for them, and I love to coach them up and help them any way that I can. And as I work with churches, all over the place, this is what I find. Churches, churches are not selfish with their money. They're actually not. Most churches, when there's a real need, the people will raise money and help with that need. And I find that all over the place. They're not really, really selfish with their money. Most churches are not selfish with their buildings. They're really not. Most churches, if the school needs to use the building or there needs to be like voting or a blood drive or something like that, most churches will kind of throw open the, the, the doors of their building and let the community use it, right? You know what most churches are selfish with? The thing that most churches are the most selfish with, are you ready, is the gospel. In fact, most Christ followers, you know what they're the most selfish with? Not their money. If I told you about a real need, I, I bet you we could raise a ton of money really quick if you understood the need. And it's not their building. If I said, hey, by the way, you know, there's a blood shortage and the Red Cross wants to be in here this afternoon, you say, bring them in. That's what it's for, right? Most Christians, what we're the most selfish with is the gospel. If I asked you, when's the last time you gave to charity, you could probably tell me. If I said to you, When's the last time you told a friend, family member, classmate about Christ? Oh, I don't want, I mean, I don't want to shove my beliefs down their throat. The average number of people who come to know Christ in the average church in, in North America per year is zero. Where we are the most selfish as the body of Christ is with the proclamation of the gospel which is very fascinating when Jesus says the primary thing that I want you to do is to proclaim the gospel. And for most churches, they would look and say, that's not even on our radar. We'll, we'll help people. We'll do kind things. And that's all great. But don't ask us to do that thing. That's where we would be most apt to back away and not want to be a part of it.
The Apostle Paul was talking about this in the book of Romans. If you've got your Bibles, open up a little bit. I want to show you this example of an early church that struggled with the same kind of things that, that we do and most churches do. Romans chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you want to use a Bible on the chair, it's page 922, and this is all on the app. Verse 14, chapter 15 of Romans, Paul is talking to people who are new Christians. We call this the early church. The bulk of the early church were people who grew up in a Jewish heritage who discovered that Jesus was their promised Messiah and began to believe in him as their Savior and Lord. So we might say this today, most of the early church, the very, very early church, grew up in church. There were people who kind of grew up in church, and then there was a group of people that did not grow up in church, and usually Paul referred to them as Gentiles. They were just godless people. They were non-Jewish people. They either grew up in a false god or with no faith whatsoever. So he's writing this letter to people who grew up in church but have come to follow Jesus. And he says this in verse 14, I myself am convinced my brothers and sisters. So these guys are in the family of God, the house of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. I myself am convinced my brothers and sisters that you yourself are full of goodness filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. That's a massive compliment. You know what he's saying? He's saying, guys, the gospel came to you. You took it. You received it for salvation, and you're receiving all that Christ wants to give you. You're learning to obey everything that he commanded you. You are full of goodness. You are full of knowledge. In fact, you've grown so much in your faith, you're actually able to teach each other. That's, that's a pretty big deal. You've kind of mastered doctrine and theology and the word of God to a degree that you can help each other understand it. You're right where you need to be when it comes to the growth of your faith. Verse 15, yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. The end of verse 19, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul writes to this church, he's saying, good job, guys. You've got your head around it. You've learned it. You've done the hard work of kind of understanding the teaching of Jesus Christ. You're so accomplished in it that you can teach one another, but I have to remind you about the Gentiles, and that the reason I'm not going to be your pastor and stay here and, and the heart that you need to have is because we need to go to the Gentiles, the people who do not yet know about the hope of Jesus Christ or the gospel. He says this. He says, God gave me this priestly duty. The priestly duty is not the duty of performing rites and rituals. That's just kind of the way that it's evolved over the years, but that's not the biblical idea. The biblical idea of a priestly duty is that I help you understand the heart and the mind of Christ. I teach you everything that Christ taught us and how to obey it. 
First Peter says that all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are a royal priesthood. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, I become a priest as well. So the duty that Paul has, we all have. And that duty is to proclaim the gospel of God. To help people know and understand and know how to follow Jesus. So Paul says, I got to remind you, I got to be kind of bold about it, strong about it. You're doing great, but hey, we forgot about this. And we got to pour our lives into this. In fact, he goes on in verse 20, he says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. There are places where the gospel is not clear, where it is not easily accessible, and we have to get there. If we're going to look at the Great Commission, which is the mission of the church given to us by our founder, Jesus Christ, then we are not looking and saying, we're just going to perfect our doctrine. We're just going to build ourselves up into knowledge. We're just going to love each other. We're just going to do social justice stuff as a standalone. We have to do all those things as we and as a vehicle of taking the gospel where it is not yet known. There are the Gentiles, and they don't know, or they have a distorted view of the gospel. And the primary mission of the church of Jesus Christ, the primary vision of the church of Jesus Christ is to do that. And the way that that's accomplished is as we live to give. We would look and say, it, I don't care. If it takes money, it takes money. If it takes a basketball, it takes a basketball. If it takes a boat, it takes a boat. If it takes missionaries, I'll give, I'll go, I'll be a part of it. I will, with, with joyful generosity, with ridiculous selflessness, I will give the thing that is most precious to me if it will help proclaim the gospel and build the kingdom of God, right? Now, we anchored that here at Grace Church because we're just as susceptible to these tendencies as anybody else that it's very easy to become kind of narcissistic, kind of looking in on ourselves and saying, what do we want? What do we need? What will make our lives the most easy? What, what do we have to do? And we knew that when we started the church. I'm that way, you're that way, every human being is that way because selflessness does not come naturally. It has to be a work of God in us to be selfless. And so we wrote that into our values and said, we're, we're always gonna make that a point that we're going to live to give and whatever it takes to move the gospel forward is what we're going to do. The way this plays out the most kind of frequently and clearly here at Grace Church is through something we call 30 in 30. And it's our belief that God has called us to start 30 churches, 30 campuses we call them, 30 churches in a 30-year window as a minimum. And we believe that if we can start 30 campuses in 30 years minimum, that that can serve as a foundation that will give birth to a movement that will last two, three, four, 500 years as we start churches that start churches that start churches. We say that there's two ways that you can grow a local church. One, think of a sequoia tree. You can grow a local church bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And to do that, it's actually not that hard to do. All you have to do is get a dynamic person that's sexy, hello. Right? And so you just, you just draw everybody to that person. 
And when more people come, you build bigger rooms and then you get them on TV and you blow them up on the internet and you do all those kind of things and you make that person a celebrity. And you can grow that church bigger and bigger and bigger and the building's bigger and bigger and bigger and the resources bigger and bigger and bigger and you can do it that way. And it's not a sin and there's parts of it that work and Grace Church decided from the get-go that we weren't doing that. That our vision was not after 30 years to leave one massive thing behind us. What we decided to do instead was to leave an orchard behind us. We wanna plant multiple trees that are different sizes and different varieties, but are all fruit bearing. And we want to spread it out. And it's okay if some trees are bigger than other trees and some trees are older, more mature than other trees, as long as everything is fruit bearing. Because when something is fruit bearing, it will never cease to bear fruit. Because fruit bears fruit that bears fruit that bears fruit that bears fruit. And as we looked at the gospel and we looked at the history of the church, we said this is how the gospels traveled. Not because one person was one big deal and it all comes from a centralized location, but because it was turned loose. And people, disciples made disciples made disciples, churches planted churches that planted churches, and Grace Church wants to be a part of that. I'll give you an example of this. Over Christmas time here at Grace Church, when you look at all of our campuses, we have eight campuses right now. We have six here in Northeast Ohio and two in Atlanta, Georgia. When you look at all of our campuses and all of our internet sites all over the place, and you look at our Christmas services, when everybody came to Christmas, kind of in one season, we had a little over 14,500 people come to services here at Grace Church, right? It's a massive number. That's about how big the church is. In our system, though, nobody sits in a room of more than 600 people. So we would take that massive number, and instead of buying a stadium or building a stadium, we would say, let's spread that out. Let's spread that out over eight campuses. Let's spread that out over different venues. Let's push that out so that those people root in their local communities, not just around one person. We would look and say, when we have extra, when a bunch of people are driving from Medina all the way over to Bath, we would say, let's start a campus in Medina. When they're driving from Barbara and up to Bath, they say, let's start a campus in Bath. Let's go relocalize that church. When there's extra money, instead of building the bigger auditoriums and the bigger auditoriums and the bigger auditoriums, we would say, let's take that same money and let's go start new churches. And let's let them and make sure that they start new churches and that those churches start new churches. And you start an organic movement that moves forward. So we would look and say, right, because we live to give. We're not gonna hoard it in and bank a ton of money and all that kind of stuff. We're gonna give that and push it back into the kingdom of God because we need to take the gospel where it is not clear and it's not easily accessible. We wanna go to places where Christ is not known. And we do that here in North America. We actually do it all over the world. So we have missionaries in Africa right now and Haiti and Mexico and Brazil, all over the world. We would have folks who would say, you know what, I'll give my life. I'll give my comfort, I'll give my career, I'll go do those things. And they would go and we might give our money and support them or we might go help them or we might be next in line. We would have interns and residents. And these generally are younger people who say, I'll give my career path, I'll give my education, 
I want to go into full-time ministry. I want to be a part of spreading the kingdom of God. I'll give, and, and I'll, I'll give my, my hopes and dreams in order to do that. And that's all out of this value that we would do those things and move it forward. So this is what's gonna happen. This is what happens. If you're a part of Grace Church, you'll get sucked into this, right? We're, gonna, we're always gonna be pursuing this together. And if you look and say, yeah, Grace is my home church, I would look at you and say, you're gonna be moving toward this as well. We want you to move from receivers of the gospel to proclaimers of the gospel, and we want you to live to give. We want you to joyfully give generously, and we want you to do it with a selflessness. So it's everything from we're raising money for something. Just so you know, every three years, we raise money at Grace Church. You can put it on the calendar, right? There's 25 years left and 30 and 30. 25 years from now, I'm retiring. 25 years, bogue out, right? So there's seven more times that we're gonna raise money. After I'm out, you do whatever you want, but that's what I'm doing, right? And so we're all, it all is going to propagate the gospel like that. So you're gonna be asked to give money. You're gonna be asked to go, there may very well may be a time when we say, we're gonna launch a campus here, and you're like, mm, that's my hometown. And we're gonna say, well, would you be willing to uproot? Would you be willing to break away? But I love the music, and, my, and I'm so connected with my friends, and Jeff is so pleasing to look at every week, and I don't wanna go. And we'd say, oh, you gotta go. Because the gospel and those people not knowing it is more important, would you go? Some of you are in high school, college. You might say, I, I think God's calling me. Maybe I need to study for ministry. Maybe I need to be a part of it. See, Some of you, there are people who have sat in these very auditoriums who have said, ah, you know what, I'll sell my business. I'll go to Africa. I'll walk away from my career. I'll go. I'm a, I'm a university professor and I will walk away from that and go be a missionary in Brazil. I'll do it. And it's all the same thing. And then some of us, we don't feel that call. We'll say, you know what, I'll help pay for it. I'll go and support them. I'll give my life to, I'll make sure that, right? And we do that together because Christ has done that for us. It is a reflection of God. It is a powerful statement when a group of people who don't need a specific thing will finance a specific thing. A group of people who don't, I, don't, I wasn't born and raised in that community, but I'll move into it and be a part of it. When a group of people say, I'll, I'll share not, not just my, my, my money, but my life as well. My home is open I have this thing that can be used. I have this resource that I'll make available, see? And all of a sudden, people will look and say, man, that was loving. What motivates that love? And we would go from a receiver of the gospel to a proclaimer of the gospel. I'm motivated by love because I'm loved. It was done for me. Did you know the father gave his son, the son gave his life, that salvation is a gift, and it's reflected all the way through to the people of God. I was thinking about this this week, and um, I realized it had probably been a little while since I had told you the story of how grace began. So I want to tell you that story real quick, okay? Heidi and I came to grace in 1993. 
to our, what is now our Norton campus. I was the, the youth pastor there, worked with junior high and high school students. And I have a mentor, Pastor Bob Combs, he's a great guy, little guy, but great guy, love him. Sometimes I carry him around places, but he's a really, really good guy. And he, he is probably, outside of my parents, the person who's had the greatest impact on my life. And Pastor Bob's greatest strength is his humility. He is one of the most selfless human beings I've ever met. Never exaggerates, never tells a lot. He just, this is my life, this is how I live it, this, this is how I wanna give it to you. And I became the recipient of that. And it was never threatened by me or anything like that. He wanted me to succeed. Our, our culture of giving away our best and helping young men and women succeed in ministry is a direct result of that being modeled by Pastor Bob. I was his youth pastor for about six or seven years. In 1999, he came to me and he said, Jeff, I'm working on something. He said, there's a church up the road in Bath called the Fairlawn Grace Brethren Church. They're having a hard time and I wanna help them out. Here's a short version. The church had gone through some difficult times. They had come to be about 50 or 60 people. And they had started turning, it turned to Pastor Bob and said, what should we do? How should we interact? The leaders at the time saw that the place that the church is located is very valuable. You're sitting in that place right now. The original building was the cafe and the nursery wing out here. And they knew that if they couldn't keep the church open, they'd have to sell the property. The property would become condos and it would never again serve the Lord. And so they, they knew what they had and they knew they were gonna have trouble kind of getting it revived. And so they eventually looked at Pastor Bob and said, if we give you this property, would you replant a church in it? And so Pastor Bob agreed, and so those people signed it over and gave away the property. And then Pastor Bob looked at me and said, Jeff, would you and Heidi go up and start the new church? And I said, no, 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 no. I know those people. I don't want to hang out with them. And I said, I said, I'm not, I don't want to. I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a small church pastor. I know that. I was a big deal in youth ministry and being a big deal is a really big deal to me. And so I didn't wanna become a little deal. And so I just had all those things going through my mind. I was 28 years old and I was young and arrogant and that's who I was. And Pastor Bob said, will you at least meet with them? And so I said, sure. And so we had a meeting out in what would be the cafe now. And that was the original auditorium. And back then it had pews in it. It had a big stained glass window. It had a, a communion table. It had a Bible in the shape of a pulpit. It was kind of a, kind of a 1950s, 1960s church building is what it was. It was, it was clean. It was, it was kept well, but, but it had not been renovated. There weren't the resources for those kind of things. And so I sat in that auditorium. There was about 50 or 60 people in there. About, I'm estimating, about a third would have been in their 70s or 80s about a third would have been in their 50s or 60s, and about a third would have been the children of the people in their 50s and 60s. So some of them were in college and young, and some of them were in high school. And so I'm sitting out there, and we're talking, and they 
in essence said to me, what would you do if you came here? And I said, well, listen, if I'm gonna come here, then we gotta reach the young people. We have to. We, we have to make Jesus make sense to them. What does that mean? Well, it means we gotta do everything differently. Uh, that organ over there that has the memorial plaque on it and the widower who gave it in memory of his wife is sitting right there, that has to go. That thing over there, that piano that has the memorial plaque on it and the widow who gave that memory of her husband is sitting right there, that has to go. And the pulpit that so many life-changing sermons were given from that's gotta go. And the stained glass window that was made by someone in the church, that has to go. And when we get money, the pews have to go. And I'm gonna bring in the drums and bring in the guitars. And I hadn't even introduced the idea of an Ezra yet, <laughs> right? And I said, that, that's all gotta happen. And I said, I'm not gonna dress up because people don't dress up and go to church anymore because suit and ties and, and there's no choir. And all of your traditions and all of the things that you're used to and all of the things that have been valuable to you, they're all going to go away. And by the way, we're gonna do that instantly. The reason I always know how old the church is, because the last Sunday of 1999 was the Fairlawn Grace Brethren. The first Sunday of 2000 was the Bath Campus. So our birthday is always that first Sunday of the new year. That's how I always know exactly how old we are. We talked about that, and there was a silence, and there was a process, and they voted, because they got to vote whether they were gonna have a cocky 28-year-old pastor who had all kinds of life experiences and deep insight and wisdom <laughs> in his back pocket was going to pastor them and lead them to this uncharted territory into things that were brand new at the time. They, they become normal for us, but back then, Life groups and things like that were all, we had to invent it all. Power kids had to be invented, like all that had to be invented. So I'm just literally talking about, we're gonna get rid of things and we're gonna make other stuff up. Don't ask me what it is yet. And they voted unanimously to do it. Arletta Peters was in that room She's probably in her mid-80s then. I remember she came up to me after the meeting and her husband had passed away. That was one of those plaques. And she said, Jeff, do you really think we'll reach the young people? I said, Aletta, I think we will. Okay, I'm in. She came to church every week until she went home to be with the Lord. Now, she put cotton in her ears. <laughs> but every week, and she would serve coffee, and she loved, she loved watching young fathers love and lead their children. She talked about it all the time. She gave it all away. Francis Orms was in that room. He helped to lay the block in the building with his own hands. And before he died, we had outgrown that building. We were beginning the process of raising the money to build the auditorium here at Gent Road. He didn't have any money, he's on a fixed income. 
He died and we did his funeral. We love Francis. And I got a call a couple weeks later. He willed us money. He didn't have a check to write, but he had some left over and he gave it. Helped to pay for this. Rick Kemp was in that room. It was his wife who had passed away and he, his wife had one of those memorial plaques. I went to him, said, Rick, I gotta, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Jeff, whatever it takes to proclaim the gospel, my wife is with the Lord. We need to reach the people who don't know Christ yet. That was his response to me saying, I'm gonna get rid of the thing that memorializes your wife. Craig Christner was in that room. Craig, over the years, had pastored this church multiple times. If Craig would have raised his hand and said, Jeff's the wrong guy, or raised his hand and said, I want the church, the people would have rightly followed him. I never had a greater ally in ministry than Craig Christner. Why did they do it? Why did they do it? Look at me, catch this. Why'd they do it? They did it for you. They dreamt of you. They wanted you to know the gospel. They wanted you to receive the full life of Jesus Christ. They, and that meant so much to them that with applause, they voted to give up everything they ever had, worked for, paid for, and knew. And with ridiculous selflessness, all they got out of it was you. This is how the kingdom of God works. It's how the kingdom of God works. And we, we now dream about the new yous. And we want them to know what we've found, that there is a, a savior who loves us, who will rescue us. If the church of Jesus Christ won't love. If the church of Jesus Christ would refuse to be selfless, if we would look and say, not only is my money mine, but my church building's mine, and my traditions are mine, and my life is mine, and who would do that then? Selflessness is a result of godliness. There are few greater testimonies 
And when we look at our Lord, it's how he has loved and given to us. And then we, his people, just look and say, you know what? We're doing that. And we're writing it in stone because we always get distracted from it. But it's been done, and it's been done, and it's been done, and it's been done. And guys, listen, if we do it right, two, three hundred years from now, when we're long off the planet, if we do it right, nobody will even know we did it. Who they will know is Jesus Christ. What they will interact with is his living, breathing church. But when we live to give in our little piece of dirt, in our little slice of history, look at what happens in just 19 years of that. We... We are generous. We are selfless. We are joyful. We, we live to give. Band's gonna settle in and maybe just pray this way. Ask God, is there any part of my heart that does not reflect your generosity? Is there any good and perfect thing that you have given me that I am hoarding, that I won't give? And ask God to challenge you or encourage you or help you or reveal to you how you can better reflect his heart and mind to the people around you, okay? Jesus, help us with this, all of us, me too. We're prone to wander, God, and selfishness is always the natural response of the human heart. Selflessness is a supernatural work that you have to do in us. So God, through your Holy Spirit, would you do that even now? whatever it is in our life, God, that you could use or want to use for the kingdom. Would you show us? Would you press us? Would you embolden us to step forward in faith in those ways? In these still moments, God, press into our hearts in these very real ways. In your name, Jesus.